Jesus' statement to the rich young ruler that he must keep all of the commandments to inherit eternal life does not apply in the practical sense. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host Nathan, and in this episode, we are going to finish our series on truths to prevent deconstruction by discussing the topic of biblical authority. Biblical authority is just what it sounds like, which is the belief that the Bible is authoritative in what it says and therefore has the right to command belief and or action. We are going to start our discussion on biblical authority by noting how it is a natural conclusion which arises from a belief in inspiration and inerrancy. After describing the relationship between biblical authority and inspiration and inerrancy, we will look at how Jesus viewed the topic of biblical authority. We will then discuss a few examples of complications which may arise from studying this topic and look at how to resolve them. Now, I want to start by reading a quote from the popular seminary book titled Christian Theology by Miller J. Erickson. Concerning the authority of God, he states that God is the highest being, the one who always has been, who existed before we or any other being came into existence. He is the only being having the power of his own existence within himself, not dependent on anyone or anything else for it. Furthermore, he is the authority because of what he has done. He has created us all, as well as everything else in the entire world, and he has redeemed us. He is also rightfully the authority, the one who has a right to prescribe what we are to believe and how we are to act, because of his continuing activity in the world and in our lives. He maintains his creation in existence. He continues to give us life, cares for us, and provides for our needs. So, even though it's common sense that God would rightfully have authority over his creation, this quote does well to further explain the details as to why this is. Because we are all just mortal humans with limited knowledge, and God is the infinite, all-knowing creator of the universe, obviously for a human to be logically consistent, they must submit to whatever God says. And here we see the vital relationship between biblical inspiration and biblical authority. Because humans should submit to whatever God says, and God inspired every word of the Bible, naturally humans should submit to the Bible. That's why a proper understanding of inspiration is so foundational to the Christian faith. It's a shame that so many churches fail to discuss the evidence for biblical inspiration, such as messianic prophecy, Jesus' view on scripture, scientific facts revealed in the Bible, etc., because a serious view of inspiration will inevitably result in an ultimate respect for the Bible's authority as God's perfect word. Likewise, a statement must be trustworthy in order for it to legitimately be authoritative. This is where biblical authority relates to biblical inerrancy, 
If someone does not believe the Bible is correct in its statements, then naturally the Bible would not be authoritative. When we discussed inerrancy on the last episode, I demonstrated the importance of believing the Bible is correct in all of its statements, whether those statements be historical, scientific, or theological. I pointed out that if one believes that the Bible contains errors in parts where it can be tested, then they would have no way of guaranteeing that it is correct in its claims which cannot be tested, and thus there would be no way to know if some of the foundational claims of Christianity are true or not. If one starts to pick and choose what they want to believe is true in the Bible, then they could rationalize the act of disregarding the authority of certain biblical passages that they don't want to submit to. On the flip side, if someone respects the entire Bible as being fully true, then in order to be logically consistent, they must submit to all of the Bible's demands for them. So, because the Bible is inspired by God and is therefore inerrant, by default, it is authoritative in all things which it discusses. Even though the Bible is correct and should be followed in all of its teachings, while taking the correct context into account, whether one chooses to submit to the Bible's authority is a whole other question. One thing for sure, though, is that Jesus understood the Bible to be completely authoritative. This is clearly seen in that Jesus constantly uses the Old Testament as an authority when he argues with the Pharisees. Matthew 19 records that the Pharisees came to Jesus, tempting him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh? Therefore what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus is quoting directly from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 here. And notice that he is using the text of Genesis as the basis for his argument against divorce. The fact that Genesis is the logical starting point for Jesus' argument demonstrates that he believes the Old Testament is authoritative. It is also important to point out that Jesus is citing the creation account in Genesis as if it is real history here, and he even states that God made man and woman at the beginning, which reflects a literal understanding of Genesis 1. When debating the Pharisees concerning the nature of the Sabbath commandment in Matthew 12, Jesus also makes reference to the Old Testament as the foundation for his argument. Jesus specifically brings up a passage about King David, which can be found in 1 Samuel 21, and again he presents the events in this passage as being historically accurate and holding authoritative power. In Mark 12, the Sadducees are mentioned, which were a sect of Jews who did not believe in any future bodily resurrection. When they try to challenge Jesus on the validity of the resurrection, Jesus responds in verse 26 by quoting from Exodus 3 verse 6. 
he says that, Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Again, we see Jesus referring to the Old Testament here and basing his entire argument on it. This demonstrates that Jesus held the position that the Bible is both inspired by God and inerrant, and therefore it is authoritative in everything it says. Likewise, when the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4, Jesus rebukes the devil multiple times by stating, as it is written, and then quoting the Old Testament. So again, we see here that Jesus uses the Old Testament as the final authority to settle arguments. What's interesting is that during this scene, even the devil tries to use the authority of Scripture to tempt Jesus. Luke 4 verses 9 to 12 state that the devil brought Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, to protect you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you should dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said unto him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Notice that the devil pulls scripture out of context to try and convince Jesus to do what he wants. But Jesus rebukes his illegitimate use of the Old Testament by citing a different passage from the Old Testament. This is important because it demonstrates that even the devil understood Jesus' belief of the ultimate authority of the Bible. This passage also demonstrates that one must have a proper system of hermeneutics, or way of interpreting the Bible, in order to correctly submit to the Bible's authority. In order to best obtain proper hermeneutics and a consistent view of the Bible, theologians generally rely on systematic theology. Systematic theology is basically the study of the Bible as a whole. Instead of forming doctrine based on one particular passage, systematic theology recognizes that because the entire Bible is inspired by God, and God cannot contradict himself, properly interpreting biblical passages relies on studying the context of each passage and the Bible's teachings as a whole. A perfect example of the importance of a hermeneutic approach based on systematic theology can be seen in the story of the rich young ruler, which can be found in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. In all three versions of the story, a man asks Jesus the question, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by saying, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor your father and mother. And so, if we just focus exclusively on this verse and ignore its context, as well as the rest of the Bible, then it appears to say that in order for one to obtain salvation, they have to keep all of God's commandments. However, 
We know that all of the clear verses which concern salvation state that it is by faith alone that we are saved, not by our works. Because of the Bible's consistent teaching that salvation is by faith alone, we should examine the passage of the rich young ruler carefully. When we do, it is clear what's going on here. Notice that the ruler specifically asks what he must do to get eternal life. And when you read further in the passage, he actually claims that he has kept all of God's commandments and has been sinless since his youth, which we all know is false because other Bible passages, such as Romans 3 and Common Sense, tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because the rich young ruler expresses an attitude of self-glorification, Jesus answers the man's question as specifically as he asked it. Since the young man's words imply that he wants to gain eternal life by his own works, Jesus explains that if anyone really wants to get to heaven based on their own works, then they have to keep every law of God perfectly. And this actually makes complete sense. Because if one lives their whole life and never sins, then God would have no reason to punish them in hell for eternity. However, because all have sinned, the only true way for humans to obtain salvation is by accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ as atonement for their sins. Hence, Jesus' statement to the rich young ruler that he must keep all of the commandments to inherit eternal life does not apply in the practical sense. It is merely a clever way of explaining that every human must rely on God for salvation instead of their own works, which is further expressed if one reads the entire passage. A common topic where the authority of scripture must take careful consideration for context and rely on systematic theology is the Old Testament law and how it applies to Christians. This can be a very complex study and typically takes a fair amount of research, but we'll just look at one verse as an example of this topic. Deuteronomy 14.8 states that the swine is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their dead carcass. If we just look plainly at this verse and disregard its context, then a belief in biblical authority would naturally lead one to conclude that they should not eat pork because God does not want them to. However, when we look at the context of this verse, we see that it is a command given specifically to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Because God promised to produce the Messiah through the nation of Israel and made a covenant with them, he took special interest in how they operated. It is clear that different commandments to ancient Israel had different purposes. Some were given to preserve the nation's well-being, some were given to sanctify them as a special people apart from the rest of the world, and some were given to foreshadow the arrival of the Messiah. It is important to understand the principles behind the laws of ancient Israel, and since the Messiah has already arrived and accomplished his work here on earth for the atonement of sin, we can look at the New Testament to help us with the application of the Old Testament. 
Because both Old and New Testaments are fully inspired by God, and the New Testament occurs later in God's timeline than the Old Testament, the New Testament naturally supersedes the Old Testament in terms of practical application. This means that if the New Testament commands believers to do things that are not in strict accordance with the Old Testament law as given to ancient Israel, then the New Testament command takes precedence over the Old Testament command. In the case of the Mosaic Law's command that the Israelites should not eat pork, the New Testament notes in Colossians 2 that Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Let no man therefore judge you in food or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Paul is referring to the Old Testament law here with the phrase, handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and he is saying that Jesus blotted it out through the victory of his work on the cross. Therefore, Christians do not have to try and maintain every Old Testament rule in order to keep good graces with God. This passage is saying that Christians should not let anyone judge them based on the types of foods that they eat because the strict Old Testament dietary laws were simply a shadow of the future Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, God has chosen to blot out certain Old Testament commandments from his list of expectations for his children. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 4, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from food, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So, this passage clearly indicates that Christians are free to eat any types of foods they want, especially if they bless the food with prayer. Notice that the passage explicitly says that every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, demonstrating that Paul specifically had the idea of eating animals in mind here. Furthermore, this passage actually appears to compare the practice of placing strict restrictions on food for salvation-related purposes with doctrines of devils, which makes sense because we know that the Bible teaches salvation is by faith alone in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so, if somebody thinks their works have anything to do with their justification before God, then they do not understand the gospel. There are other New Testament verses we could look at concerning this topic, but I think the point has been made here that we must be careful to study the context of biblical passages 
in order to determine if or how they apply to us today. In the case of eating pork, it's clear that while that restriction did apply to the Israelites living before the Messiah arrived, God has told us in the New Testament that he does not demand Christians to keep this commandment. It should be noted that one of the most prominent false religions which tries to forbid people from eating pork and meat altogether is Seventh-day Adventism. This is because the primary founder of their religion, which they believe is a prophetess named Ellen G. White, specifically said that believers should not eat meat. Because true Seventh-day Adventists believe Ellen White's writings are inspired by God and view her writings as being equal to the Bible itself in terms of authority, they submit to her teachings and try to promote them. Ellen White literally wrote thousands of pages throughout her lifetime, and there's a website titled EGW Writings, which has compiled many of her writings in electronic format. This website has a page titled Chapter 23, Flesh Meats, and records Ellen White as writing, Vegetables, fruits, and grains should compose our diet. Not an ounce of flesh meat should enter our stomachs. The eating of flesh is unnatural. We are to return to God's original purpose in the creation of man. She also said, Let not any of our ministers set an evil example in the eating of flesh meat. So we see here that Ellen White thought eating meat is actually evil. And this last quote I will bring up is her explanation as to why man's lifespan decreased dramatically after the flood of Noah. She said that God permitted that long-lived race to eat animal food to shorten their sinful lives. Soon after the flood, the race began to rapidly decrease in size and in length of years. Now, if you've studied apologetics, you're likely familiar with the legitimate explanations as to why man's lifespan decreased after the flood, such as a significantly different atmosphere, DNA decay, or a direct supernatural action from God. But there is no evidence from the Bible that God purposefully told humans to eat meat so they would die quicker. Though the New Testament is clear that it does not displease God if Christians eat meat, there are some commandments in the New Testament for Christians. When some legalistic Jews were confused about which commandments the Gentile Christians would have to keep, such as being circumcised or not, James states in Acts 15 verses 19 to 20 that my sentence is that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Likewise, Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verses 25 to 30, to put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. Let him that stole steal no more. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. 
It should be noted that there are more commands for Christians in the New Testament than those mentioned here, but I will end with these examples because the purpose of this episode is not to provide an exhaustive list of all the New Testament commands for Christians. While there are clear commands in the New Testament that apply directly to Christians, it is vital to remember that following these commands is not what gets anybody into heaven. Christians should follow these commands because of the inherent authority these commands carry as being from God. And if Christians fail to follow God's commands for their life, then they may suffer unpleasant correction from God in this lifetime and losses of rewards in heaven. But Christians will never gain or lose their salvation from hell by following works-based commands. It is made clear in an abundance of biblical passages that one is only justified before God by faith alone and that once somebody becomes a Christian, they can never lose their salvation. We mentioned James's response to the legalistic Jews in Acts 15, but a few verses before that passage, Peter also corrects these Jews by saying, Why do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers or we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. At the end of Paul's statement in Ephesians 4 that we just mentioned as well, he commands Christians to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. This passage strongly supports that Christians cannot lose their salvation because they are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Finally, one of the clearest statements that a Christian's salvation depends on their faith in Christ rather than adherence to any commandments is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 6.12 that all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul acknowledges here that even though technically all things are lawful to him because nothing will result in him losing his salvation and going to hell for eternity, he still should not do certain things because God does not want him to do certain things, and if he does do these things, then they will just end up harming him. All things are lawful for Christians, but not all things are beneficial. To wrap up this episode, it should be noted that while yes, all of the Bible is authoritative because it is all inspired by God and without error, it is crucial to understand the application of certain passages to fully respect the Bible's authority. So, what does this look like exactly? Well, I fully accept the authority of God's statement that the ancient Israelites should not eat pork because I completely respect and agree with every word of God. However, due to systematic theology and an understanding of the Bible as a whole, I also understand that as a Christian living after the finished work of Christ on the cross, this law does not practically apply to me. I also fully accept the authority of God's statement that the only way to be saved 
is through faith in him because I completely respect and agree with every word of God. However, unlike God's Old Testament command to not eat pork, I recognize that this statement from God is universal and applies to every human being across all time and space. Therefore, while God's command to not eat pork is limited to a particular people in a particular time, which I am not a part of, God's command to accept the gospel by faith alone does practically apply to me because it applies to every human being who has ever lived or will ever live. And this is why, as the Bible says, we should study the scriptures diligently so we can discover what God wants of us. Every passage should be interpreted in light of its context and of other scripture, which often requires a good amount of historical and biblical research. I don't know about you, but this really makes me appreciate just how intellectually deep Christianity is, because sometimes there are multiple pieces one must put together in order to properly understand the Word of God. And with that, we will end this episode and therefore conclude our three-part series on Truths to Prevent Deconstruction. If you listen to the entire series, I really hope that your appreciation of biblical inspiration, inerrancy, and authority has increased and that you understand that a proper view of these doctrines is essential for one to be consistent in their Christian faith. These doctrines really are foundational to Christianity, and it is very important that our positions on these topics are both logical and in alignment with Jesus' view on these topics. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.